Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is James Ehrlich. He's the entrepreneur in residence at Stanford University School of Medicine on their Stanford Flourishing Project. And he's the founder and CEO of Regen Villages. Welcome, James. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jim. Yeah, it's really good to have you here. We're going to be talking about mostly his Regen Village stuff. And we've been talking to a number of people recently about permaculture, regenerative ecology, intentional communities on the show, people like Morag Gamble, Daniel Christian Wall, Joe Brewer, some others. So this fits into this theme we've been talking about, about how do we live on the land in a way that we can actually support something like 8 billion people within what Mother Nature can really reasonably allocate to the human race. So in very short, very short, a couple sentences, what is a Regen Village? Yeah, very short. Regen Villages is a technology-enabled, bio-regenerative, resilient neighborhood infrastructure design um, that enables people to live in a beautiful, energy-positive dwelling uh, with uh, critical life support systems of clean food, clean water, clean energy, and waste-to-resource management um, at the neighborhood scale. And we say neighborhood, about what size? Well, really, it's a relationship somewhere between, in a ratio between one-third to two-thirds. So one-third of built space to two-third of open space. So through that context, uh, if you wanted to have a neighborhood of 300, 400 homes, uh, then you would have you know, something like, uh, let's say, 60, 80 acres, something like that. And accordingly, you know, uh, 20 of those acres would be devoted to uh, village housing density, and the other 40 plus acres would be devoted to organic food production, permaculture, uh, clean water, uh, you know, cisterning, energy production, waste digestion, et cetera. Gotcha. You know, as a farmer myself, I'm a little skeptical that you could support that level of population on that small amount of land, but we'll get into that later. You know, this kind of fits in the category, kind of similar to eco-villages. I want to put you in that space of eco-village, and then the other dimension is intentional community. How much communal living do you expect in a regen village, or is it going to be more like a ecologically aware subdivision? Well, you know, I, I've spent about 15 plus years doing case study research of organic and biodynamic family farms, intentional communities, eco-villages, co-housing, collaboratives. And I've always, of course, inspired by these kinds of neighborhoods, how healthy and how happy people are. People are aging in place and you have young babies and you've got young couples and individuals, etc. Um, but the difficulty that I found was how long it takes for these communities to, to form and get constructed and come to life, uh, somewhere between eight to 30 years. And so I wanted to take a more, you know, coming through Stanford research on this topic, take a more, let's say, industrialized approach, if you will, the best you know, uh, light of that kind of term, to, to see how we could globally replicate 
and scale these kinds of communities around the world through the lens, yes, of real estate uh, development, but also to address these 17 sustainable development goals. And so the answer to your question is that Regen Villages takes a more agnostic approach, if you will, to neighborhood development. We're not trying to 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 social engineer or create these, you know, um, utopias, quote unquote, of intentional, you know, communities and, and, and folks. People will vote with their ability or interest to live in these kinds of neighborhoods and um, and will benefit from living in these communities. The the rest we sort of envision will happen organically. That's kind of our concept that people will come together through, you know, DIY movement, maker movement, curriculum, um, community events, cooking, shared, you know, kinds of 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 of, uh, of creative uh, things that they can do, and and otherwise, um, it, they if they want to just live in the neighborhood traditionally the way other people would live in the neighborhood, that's fine too. So there's no obligations, in other words, on people. And that's also how we set things up economically. Okay, that makes sense. Could it be, could your operating system be repurposed for people who did want to have a more tightly linked intentional community? And one of the areas I've done research on, because it provides some interesting spectrum of how people live together, is the Israeli kibbutz movement. You know, in the early days, it was radical socialism. Everybody made exactly the same income. Everybody lived in exactly the same size house. And everybody ate their meals together in common. They even had a common laundry. And even clothes were shared. Very radical egalitarian. Over time, they found that it didn't exactly work. And they evolved various variations. And now across Israeli kibbutzes, you have everything from still about 20% hold to the hardcore, original, radical, social egalitarianism. Other ones could be Ann Randian gulch, gulches and and a whole bunch in between. Do you see anything about your operating system that is incompatible with exploring those kinds of relationships? No, not at all. I mean, look, our village operating system software is intended to do a few key things. The first is we need to change the bloody rules when it comes to uh, residential development. And that means zoning, on open space, agricultural land, in balance with nature. We can prove, actually, that we can produce more clean organic food, clean water, clean energy, waste resource management uh, on open space than if you just left that to monoculture organic production or other kinds of food production. And and so it's about changing the rules to allow this fast-track development of these neighborhoods to happen. The other part of the software is to manage these um, lush, regenerative, flourishing neighborhoods as an infrastructure, a sentient infrastructure play, really. Because I came into Regen Village's research um, through through my uh, engagement at Stanford on what was called the Solar Decathlon competition, and 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 this competition was really focusing on this idea of a smart house. And and about five minutes into my research, I went to the professors and I said, um, "It occurs to me that a smart house inside of a dumb neighborhood doesn't make a lot of sense." And fortunately, it was the right professors at the right time uh, at Stanford who looked at me and said, this is a really interesting um, design challenge. Why don't you, uh, you know, pursue this? And, and so through that 
context, uh, Regen Villages is really focusing on, you know, the nuts and bolts of 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 uh, making it easy for developers and 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 landowners and government and communities to dial their interest and stakeholder interest rapidly and get these communities built as quickly as we possibly can around the world. And then we can add the flavors to them culturally and, and, and geopolitically, et cetera. So that's kind of our, our thought process. And you imagine the templates being essentially open source so people can play with them as they please. We will have a certain amount of our, of our APIs will be open. That's for sure, because we're dealing with diverse technology platforms, clean water platforms, clean energy microgrid platforms, you know, food production, um, passive house technology and typology, you know, platforms, and all of that, you know, requires the ability to code into our Village OS through through an open API. We will intentionally be looking at open sourcing, especially a new rule book for governments and communities, for stakeholders to have, you know, for lay people for the first time ever to be able to to look at a piece of land or an area and kind of create this virtual overlay, if you will, um, kind of a sim city on that piece of land, video game style, where they can toggle their interests, number of homes, housing units, the kinds of homes and housing units, the amount of open space required to, to support the safety and resiliency of those people living in that community. And then, uh, that accelerates the whole process to a point where um, they don't need to bring in architects and engineers and urban planners and all of that very expensive ecosystem, at least in the early or middle stages of preliminary planning conditions. And and then that just makes everything move forward faster. And that's really our goal. We want to use machine learning to create a beautiful places for people around the world to live in. That's really what our goal is. Now, what do we need machine learning to do that for? To build a community of 300 people? I mean, do I really need machine learning to do that? I mean, we've lived in villages of that size for at least 10,000 years. I think we sort of know how to do that. I'm being a little bit obnoxious here on purpose, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Not, I, I don't think so at all. I think, you're, I think you're, you're sparring in the right way, which is the truth is that we're not talking about 300 people, we're talking about 300 families in a minimum size regen village community, number one. Number two, the moment you try to build anything anywhere around the world, pretty much you're going to be dealing with local, regional, and national government rules, regulations, and codes. And uh, those are not easy to navigate and deal with. Um, and even as you deal with those, with very expensive ecosystem, of, of designers and architects and engineers, et cetera, then you also have the daunting task of what's called community assessment, or all otherwise known as NIMBYs, not in my backyard. And what we're trying to do is get to the YIMBY stage quickly, which is, yes, in my backyard, right? So to do that, we think machine learning will absolutely love this complexity of all those different rule books unified under one umbrella uh, that can be um, looked at, crawled, and otherwise reimagined through this perspective of 
the best possible neighborhood scenarios. So then machine learning can do is it can create 10,000, 20,000, whatever it is, potential design schemes in a matter of minutes on that piece of land. And and then, then whittle it down uh, with the stakeholder engagement through those SimCity, you know, video game like toggles uh, to a place where that you've got three or four logical kind of submissions, and then the software can then take it to the next level and start to make more of a uh, maybe even a three D immersive uh, virtual simulation of of that um, master plan, and then you get this feeling of actually being there in a lot of ways. And that's where generative software design really can play a role. The next part, as I mentioned earlier, is that once that blueprint, that digital blueprint has been approved, the software becomes the farmhouse server. It can then be the the the, the tool and the platform to to look at historical data, real-time sensor data, of course, and predictive modeling using machine learning to to mitigate against risks and of course improve on and for flourishing. So we think machine learning is an amazing uh, opportunity for the neighborhoods of the future to design and operate for the benefit of its residents and the external communities in the surrounding areas. Yeah, it might have some use. I mean, I, I tend to use the word machine learning a little more narrowly in terms of, you know, the way they might use it in Silicon Valley. You're kind of using it more broadly to talk about automation technologies in general. So that's good. That clarifies that distinction. That, well, well, actual machine learning itself may have a part, for instance, in, you know, dynamic system control of a closed loop aquaculture, hydroculture system, for instance, you know, things like automating the design can be automated, but doesn't necessarily have to use machine learning to do so. I mean, kind of a nerdy distinction, but I thought one that I'm glad I dug into a little bit. Now, something you mentioned that is huge, you know, I deal with a fair number of people who are thinking about launching eco-villages or what we call proto-bees or other forms of on-the-ground new ways of living. And the biggest goddamn barrier is land use regulation, building codes, and health departments. And unfortunately, they are all over the place. I mean, we have some jurisdictions here in Virginia where tiny houses are forbidden, for instance. All houses must be at least X. I think it's like 900 square feet. We have other ones that do not allow the development of open space into villages. Rather, you're forced by the land use regulation to scatter your housing across 10-acre lots. I can think of one county where that's the requirement. You know, we have places where, you know, there's grossly over-engineered health department requirements with respect to septic systems, and they ban community sewage plants that are, you know, going to use the sewage and turn it back into fertilizer, for instance. So it's a complete clusterfuck trying to navigate land use, building codes, and health department regulations. At least that's the experience of people I know. Exactly. And really what it comes down to from, from our perspective is that, you know, when you look at government e-governance, like for instance in Estonia, and I love Estonia because it's such a great example of of a group of forward thinking folks who came together and you know and 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 piece by piece they started to to create this um, e-governance system that allows lay people 
citizens to to gain access to very important information in a very easy way and control the the, the data in a way that they need to for themselves. You know, whether it's you know, dealing with driver's license or parking tickets or, or 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 planning conditions or things like this. And really what it comes down to is, to be perfectly honest, the data that we're talking about of rules and regulations and codes is not black box. It's not hidden away from from the public. It is um, it, it's scattered <laughs> to the wind for sure, and it's in lots of different locations. But but a way to unify that data uh, and those rules and and make it accessible through a natural language search engine, for instance, that would be something open source that we'd really love to see part of our Village OS deliver on. But then, of course, being able to like I said before, use machine learning to crawl through all of those rules and start to suggest, well, if you did this and you did this, then you could get this green checkbox and you could actually build a, a Regen Village community or a regenerative, resilient community on this open space. And by, by doing this, primarily what we're trying to do is to show those governments, especially, that a lot of finance and funding is ready to kind of come in and get these communities built rapidly with very big stakeholders, people doing prefab, modular, earthen building material construction, top players and all those different platforms, and that we can really prove that these not only will these communities get built rapidly and that they will sell out and the tax base and everything will be uh, uh, lucrative and increased for those communities, but that we will be able to prove long-term positive externalities. That, in other words, that living in these kinds of communities and building these communities will result in benefits, reduced burdens to government, local, regional, national, will lower burdens on healthcare systems because people are living healthier, happier lives. They'll broker peaceful, happier places, so less burdens on criminal justice and police. And so, um, you know, there's a benefit, in other words, for those rules to be changed. And I think that's an exciting place for us and a hopeful place for us to all join together <laughs> to, to imagine. Yeah, I agree with you. But I see it like, unfortunately, because you know you are right. We have to scale this rapidly to a global scale. But unfortunately, the the wheels of local land use regulation grind very slowly. I see it as sort of an iterative back and forth fashion. You find some territory, some jurisdiction that's really relatively open-minded. You build one or two or three of these things and show that they work. And then you gather the data. Then you use that to lobby other jurisdictions to perhaps adopt a uniform code. That, that might be a very useful thing associated with these projects. Here's a uniform code for land use regulation, building codes, and health department regulations that are compatible with regen villages. And then over time, and unfortunately, this takes time, get these, uh, get more and more local jurisdictions to adopt this uniform code so that they can then compete for these definitely economic and socially positive projects. Exactly. And the truth is, to be perfectly honest, a lot of these rules and regulations, I like to say, were put on the books 100, 150 years ago by um, old white guys with long white beards and top hats. 
because they controlled district scale power, district scale water, sewage, um, roads, lighting, electrical, all those different things. And um, at the same time, there's this very fat ecosystem of providers, let's say, uh, who who are the ones that you must go to in order to do a master plan booklet. And, and it's a very thankful, expensive process for those folks because once they do a booklet, then of course it has to be iterated on and that costs more money and, and then iterated on again and that costs more money. And it's really a sport of kings. So it's been all of the rules on the books are intended to keep control. And and we can go, you know, a bit further on that control if you like, to say that it it's been, you know, kind of a thought process for many, many decades to lure people from the peri-urban and the rural areas to the cities and and then control for their diets, control for their health care, control for all of those different things, like aphids. You know, basically they're under the control of those ants, you know, tickling them for the sugar. So there's there's always been this concern, I think, about people living independently or off-grid or um, resilient in, in a regenerative way. And there's market forces that have been against it. So what we're trying to do from a Bucky Fuller perspective, Buckminster Fuller perspective, is to create a new model that makes the old model obsolete, which is a Bucky Fuller quote. And that's really our goal is to use industry to to wake up that there's a wonderful way to make money in this new era post-COVID from building these communities at scale around the world. All right. It's a good transition to my next line of questions, which basically jumps up a level. Why is this timely? Why is this important with respect to the trajectory of the world over the next hundred years or thereabouts? Well, I mean, I, I, I've always felt that it was important, you know, even 30 some odd years ago, really, you know, beginning to learn about Rudolf Steiner's work and in celestial farming practices for biodynamics and the work of Bill Mollison coming out of Australia in the 1970s on, on permaculture and these farm to table communities that are so vibrant and so beautiful and um, and then really, you know, what happened was I thought we, we had this under control somehow. I mean, I, I was really naive because I just felt like, you know, that we were going progressively in the right direction with, with this kind of thinking. But there were a number of things that happened, you know, starting in 2010, you know, uh, in 2011, you know, there was the Hurricane Sandy in, in, in New York. I'm originally from New York, by the way. Um, so seeing you know the sort of climate change anomaly hit an urban area like this and and paralyze it for for weeks um is quite a frightening thing and then you know there was the bp oil disaster of course in the gulf of mexico that was an entire food bearing ecosystem from our perspective that was was decimated and still is suffering there and then you know there was fukushima which is another also food bearing ecosystem catastrophe which is which is lingering of course and and so you know instead of burying our heads in the sand we thought this is the right timing to look at at building these kinds of communities and to imagine this um so you know starting six years ago really at stanford maybe more like seven years ago now on this concept of regen villages research 
I mean, I was laughed. I was laughed at, you know, not necessarily at Stanford, but in a lot of different circles. People just thought this guy has no idea about the trends to the cities that that he doesn't get it. That by 2050, that 75 percent of 10 billion people will be living in cities. But rather, uh, I I have been getting it, which is that cities, mega cities especially, are brittle. And and they they will break, and when they break, you're going to have this exodus. So I kept talking about this and talking about it, and here we are now, of course, nine ten months into COVID, and what are we seeing around the world uh, except an urban exodus? People who can leave uh, the the urban areas for the countryside are doing so. Um, even those people who can't afford to do it are are, are finding ways to 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 go out of the cities. Because the cities, even pre-COVID, weren't fully delivering on their promises. They were expensive. They were they weren't so clean. They had a lot of crime. They have all different kinds of issues. Uh, now with COVID, of course, they don't present any kind of sense of safety that people feel comfortable with. So this is the time in human history where all of a sudden regen villages. Uh, everybody seems to be waking up to and wanting to be um, learning about and getting involved with. So it's 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 really, I mean, COVID is terrible, but from Regen Village's perspective, it's the silver lining because we actually have the optimistic framework for a, for a post-COVID world that works. Yep, indeed. I do think it's a bit of a wake-up call. We'll see how long it lasts, however. In listening to some of your talks, I thought you made a very interesting and salient point. You made half of it here in this last section where you said by 2050, 75% of people will be living in big urban areas. But the other half of your line is that in 1950, 75% of the people on Earth were living in self-sufficient communities. That's a scary change in 100 years. Well, it's exactly what I was saying before, that if you look at what happened, this is really absolute truth is it was the birth of television right so television started to be put into people's homes into and and not even individual homes but community centers and churches and whatever in these rural areas and slowly but surely they started to broadcast these messages out to these communities that if you live uh, away from a city that you're stupid that if you don't come to the city and and get a job and get an apartment and get a better education, that you will end up, you know, living this this life of toil somehow. And 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 again, it was this promise and and threat kind of directed at the same time through through the medium of television. And over the period of those decades, from 1950 till oh, pre-COVID, let's say, this exodus happened. This messaging really worked. People felt like they wanted to, especially youth, want, were desperate to get out of their small community and, 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 and go to these urban areas and, and live you know, this, this wealthy, quote-unquote, lifestyle. But what they um, gave up by doing that, and what we gave up as a species by doing that, was, was the skills, the requisite skills for you know day-to-day survival and and understanding how the, the relationship to the natural world that we're a part of 
as humans. So that's really what happened in, in many ways. And, and, you know, I think another broader example is what happened, you know, really in, in China. You know, in China, you had the similar situation. You had, you know, agrarian nation, you had subsistence farming, and it may not have been, um, uh, you know, you know, a perfect existence, but people were, you know, lived simple lives. You know, they had, uh, uh, you know, they weren't based on consumption, extraction and consumption. And then there was this almost overnight shift when television was was shipped out to all of these rural areas in China and they were being broadcast to that they need to move, people need to move to the cities and take these manufacturing jobs and et cetera and, and build this new bold economy. And that's really an unfortunate shift in many ways. On the other hand, it's really understandable. I know my mother, for instance, grew up on a beat-ass tenant farm in northern Minnesota, sufficiently beat-ass that when her family eventually vacated it, it was abandoned. And they didn't have running water in the house. They didn't have electricity. They did have a telephone. They didn't have central heat. And this was in northern Minnesota where it get 50 below zero. So she was damn glad to get the hell out of Dodge in 1946 when she graduated from high school and moved to Washington, D.C. Life really was a shitload better than living on a beat-ass tenant farm and barely able to survive. So I think, you know, one of the things that's very different about regen villages or eco-villages is that we're not talking about a lifestyle of deprivation like on a subsistence farm in the swamps of northern Minnesota or, you know, a family trying to make it on one acre in rural China. We're talking about a a high-quality life, and I think that's really important. People aren't going to want to move back to the way things were. They need to move forward onto something new and better. That's exactly right, and and really, you know, again, my research in eco villages and intentional communities, the sort of grassroots and 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 organic, you know, ground up kind of, of of developments. The issue with that is people who are coming from urban backgrounds and suburban backgrounds. They don't have those skills, and they don't really in that in this moment. They don't want to have those skills. What they want to do is they want a turnkey solution. They want to be able to buy in or rent in or find a social affordable access to living in a community that has been designed and is managed in a way that that nurtures them. And and that's that's where we're seeing so much demand around the world for regen villages. Yeah, fortunately, the other thing that goes in, in concert with this and I think helps to catalyze it, is there's a growing number of millennials in particular who are becoming practitioners of local agriculture, permaculture, etc. And if there were ways to make a living, and you know, I know a number of these folks, and my wife and I have been mentoring them, investing in them, etc. They work their asses off and you know, maybe they make $11 an hour. If a better thought out system could allow them to make middle class earnings, I think there's a a significant number it may only be three or four or five percent, but that's a lot of millennials who would love to be permaculturalists or community agriculturalists in agrihood. And so I think that's a timely trend that could easily help staff the agricultural sides of these enterprises. Well, I mean, this brings up a great conversation, isn't it, about economics, right? Why do people go to a job? mostly soul-crushing work, okay, pushing a piece of paper from one end of the office to the other, only to get that same piece of paper back next day that they have to push again. Um, The reason why they do it is to get other pieces of paper that helps to pay for the vacant apartment 
or house that they've had to 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 leave eight hours a day um, to pay for, uh, or that car that they're leasing or renting or whatever it may be, or or a mortgage that they're having to pay off. In other words, that that the capital that you uh, are generating is going for the most part to rent, to to food, to utilities, and that's essentially most of where people's capital goes to from their jobs. Now, if you can live in a regenerative, resilient neighborhood that answers for some strong percentage of those needs, then the kind of potentially universal basic income, the delta that you would actually need for discretionary cash for some things you you know that the community doesn't provide for you becomes much smaller. And and really the reason why I even talk about universal basic income and new economies and et cetera is because right now, because of COVID, the entire planet has woken up to the emperor literally running butt naked down the boulevard. Okay, in terms of the fact that extraction consumption jobs don't exist anymore, and they may never come back at all in the same way. They've been disappearing before COVID. This just accelerated the trend, but it makes it more vivid, which is important. I mean, the trend has been going on since 1975, basically. COVID's a great opening of the ears. I'll say the people with ears to hear have increased quite a bit. And I think the other thing, which I think makes a lot of sense for these regen villages, is psychological health. I go to the big cities from time to time, though I live in the most rural place in the eastern half of the United States, the lowest population density east of the Mississippi River. And I personally have never found big cities to be particularly attractive, though I know a lot of people do. And in particular, one image always comes up to me. When I'm in New York, I ride the subway like a good New Yorker. That is the weirdest fucking experience. These people looking down at their feet, consciously not trying to make eye contact with each other, having no normal human interaction. People who live like that don't realize how fucking insane that is. But it can't be good for their mental health as a normal human being. And sort of like everything about living in a big city is just mind numbing in comparison to being someone who's living on the land at reasonable density with real relationships with real people and real skills. So I think that's maybe one of the biggest wins that's out there. And we, you know, see from the data uh, epidemic of mental health problems, what 40% of young women are taking psychotherapeutic drugs of one sort or another. What the fuck is that all about? Right. I guarantee the numbers are a hell of a lot less in rural America than it is in New York City. So I think that's a really important part of the reason why regen villages are the smart alternative to the megacities. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because you know I grew up in in New York and I spent most of my my childhood and and and, and the better part of my college years, uh, my undergrad at NYU, living in Manhattan. And and it was amazing because uh, just like you said, people on the subway you can't make eye contact because if you do, you're going to get that classic you know sort of De Niro line like, "What are you looking at?" You know that kind of thing. Are you looking at me? You know, and you, and so you don't want that kind of thing to happen. And then also like riding the elevator in your apartment building and people that you've you know been in those same building for twenty years, they don't even know who their neighbors are, and they don't care. That's the fucked up thing. You're right. It's 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 they don't care um, because it's illogical. You would think people move to the city to be around other people, and the truth is, um, people are afraid of other people, and that's that's where I think there's this misnomer about density. 
in, in urban areas. Yep, indeed, it's borne out by the statistics. You know, if you look at the scaling laws, some good things scale super linearly with size, like number of patents per capita, the arts, et cetera, but also crime, illness, mental illness, et cetera. So it's probably a fool's bargain for the human race, the one that's still moving rapidly ahead, because you know, maybe in the United States we have seen the light, but in places like Africa in particular, urbanization is still going full speed ahead. The other issue, which you have not mentioned, I'm curious why, is climate change and more generally limits to growth. You know, there's plenty of analysis that shows we're already exceeding the carrying capacity of the earth. And that in particular, a Western person, an American, an Australian, a Canadian, to a slightly lesser degree, a European, are consuming something on the order of four or five times what would be sustainable if everybody on earth consumed it. So, you know, it seemed to me the other hugely important, in fact, probably the most important perspective from a ethical perspective is we have to find a way to live about 80% less intensely on our demands on Mother Nature. I did sort of touch on it earlier about, you know, Hurricane Sandy and climate change anomalies, especially affecting urban areas. But but the truth is, uh, you're right, we you know, we have to find urgently, we have to come to the solutions about how to address uh, critical housing shortages around the world, because right now I think there's about a 1 billion or 1.1 billion shortage of houses uh, and homes for people to live in. That has to be fixed and sorted. Um, at the same time, connecting people directly with their natural resource flows so they can live in these places and and have their needs met, basic human needs met, Maslow of hierarchical needs met, and and by doing so, then what happens is we can we you know create these places that are blossoming and fruiting over the decades to come, and so yeah, we get this pushback a lot, of course, because number one, Regen Villages is talking about new build more than retrofit, number one, um, and that also means having to. To, to, to use and, and bring in resources, whether it's mass timber or, or hemp and hempcrete and other kinds of you know, earthen building materials, you still need to, 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 to create and carve out these communities and these neighborhoods. But our goal really is, is to say again, that 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, whatever it is later, that this is the right investment at the right time. Because these communities have what they need and are actually overproducing clean water, clean food, clean energy, and waste to resource management. And also, most importantly, especially through the lens of pandemics, that by spreading out a bit and having less density from, from these megacities in these open up areas, that we, you know, we create a better uh, environment for, for health and mitigating those risks. The bottom line is if you have a better diet and you're living with less stress, your immune system is stronger. And that's just proven science. On your version of a regen village operating system, have you guys done calculations on the greenhouse gas budget? Because you know, clearly it does cost something to you know, do new construction, put in new infrastructure, et cetera. But as you point out, if it's done smartly and on a reasonable scale, you know, i.e. we're no longer building 2,500 square foot houses, instead we're building 600 square foot houses, just as an example, 
you know, the area under the curve over a period of years starts to look very different. Have you guys done that work? Estimate what the greenhouse gas load of Regen Village might look like over a period of 50 years or 100 years? We've started doing some of the preliminary research on it, but the truth is we won't be able to get there in any sort of deeper granularity until we you know, fully engage and, and build the first pilot communities. Once we do that, we'll be able to really understand from our providers, especially the, the construction firms, the platform companies running the infrastructure and, you know, with their services and systems and appliances and all those different aspects, we'll be able to get a better snapshot of the built environment portion of the carbon footprint. And then going forward from there, we'll start to be able to provide data into those specific cells on reduced you know mobility you know to cities and and uh, increased carbon sequestration because of 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 you know uh, crop cover and plantings the things that we plan to do in terms of permaculture and food forests and etc and and so it's definitely on our roadmap to be able to provide these metrics as part of a long term you know, positive externalities. So it's a spreadsheet we've just started working on, to be honest, in collaboration with Duke University. So between Stanford Flourishing, Regen Villages, and Duke University on this new kind of spreadsheet that can show what it will look like uh, decades from now living in these kinds of communities. Okay. That's a good start. I'm just thinking out loud here. When I, we talked earlier about intentional communities of some of the ones some people I know are thinking about and working on. I think part of the rationale there is that if one builds a social operating system that is you know, based on you know, real cohesion with other people and living together, eating together, take care of each other's children in a deep way, kind of like the older communities we used to have, as opposed to a residential real estate subdivision model, the need for status through possessions or stuff goes down. So maybe you don't need a 2,400 square foot house. Psychologically, if you're getting your fulfillment through conviviality and community, and that maybe it does take something like a intentional community operating system to get the greenhouse gas levels down from these kinds of communities, rather than just trying to replicate a standard you know, residential subdivision with some upticks and tweaks. What do you think about that? Of course, climate change is, is first and foremost in our minds. Um, and also this idea of consumption and, um, and extraction. And that both of those um, feed into each other, isn't it? And that we have to address both of them. And for the global South, especially, that we have to create a new, exciting kind of aspirational goal for living in these kinds of communities. Because especially if we can show this is how the new middle class, the aspiring class, want to live in, in developed economies, then it becomes sexy and interesting and appealing for, for the rest of, of the world. And that's really our, our goal. I like that. That, that I like, right? But we have to frame, I think, to get that signal out, the moral wrapper around these communities. There's a moral imperative, people, for you to give up the high consumption way of life, the golf course and the 
Lexus and the Rolexes and all that happy horse shit and realize we don't need that to be happy. Happiness is about other things entirely. And to you know, step off the status through possessions and through positional goods game and find a new game to play. It's interesting you saying that because, you know, I recall some of my early lectures in 2014 in, uh, you know, to, to, the, to the prime minister in, in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, about this topic of regen villages and, and what they call the kampungs in, in Malaysia. Uh, and this idea that, um, that there's a new wealth, a new wealth. Uh, that it's a moniker that if you have a place, a house, an apartment in a regenerative, resilient community, that you become, it's a wealthy statement that you have this place that's safe and resilient. And, and that becomes something appealing for a mate because then they say, oh, you're, you're, you, know, you, you have a place in one of those kampungs that's, that's, that's smart and regenerative. Well, then you know, that's a good place to nest, isn't it? So we can't forget human instincts uh, at the end of the day and what drives a lot of motivations, especially with, with young people. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, building security into a community is important. And again, that's where I like some of the aspects of intentional communities. You know, once you've been accepted into an Israeli kibbutz, if you fell ill or disabled, went insane even, they had a lifelong commitment to take care of you. No, no member of a kibbutz ever became homeless. And, you know, I think that kind of security is really an important part of the package that will let people trade off a lower, quote-unquote, material standard of living for a much richer way to actually live. And, you know, I would like to see you guys push more of that in how you market this thing rather than, you know, oh, yeah, it's a little bit sexier, a little bit better, you know, residential subdivision kind of thing. I don't disagree with that. I think really what it comes down to is we have to live in a current economic milieu or let's say the pre-COVID economic milieu of real estate development. And and an iterated rate of return, IRR, and ROI, you know, uh, return on investment, and and you know, once we do that dance and we do it right, and we create these places that make investors happy, um, and they get, and we're talking about impact investors. Let me qualify that: impact investors, so they get they're getting a return that they, they can then reinvest in other kinds of impact investments. Um, that's a really uh, the, the best kind of platform for us to then launch from into these other kinds of areas of new economic models, okay? Because when you start to talk about uh, uh, kibbutzes, for instance, and you know the you know, sort of the the conservative folks listening potentially might think, God, that's, this sounds like socialism or communism. And I'm neither of those things, really. I'm, I'm a compassionist. Um, and I believe that there's a, a rich economy uh, on this idea of being, uh, of competing of who can be the most compassionate. <laughs> um, how can you create a neighborhood that delivers more thriving, flourishing, and, and more of these amenities? And that's something that I think is, is a market driver. And it's something that people can sink their teeth into, and it's a it's it's a transition point to what is already being invested in, probably by the trillions of euros and dollars in what's called green transition funding. So it's really where we want to align ourselves. 
Yeah, it's an interesting dance because on one side, you're right. There's a vast amount, trillions of dollars of money that needs to go somewhere. I mean, we can just see the signal from the current, both the low, low, low bond interest rates and the ridiculously high equity prices. Both are signals that there's an excess of global savings. And you've talked about before, I know, the fact that many responsible investors are de-investing in things like oil companies, coal companies, airlines, etc. You know, clearly bad citizens with respect to climate. And that money is going to need a place to go too. So I think that's one of the most interesting things here is that if you can do this packaging that you're proposing and particularly find a ways to navigate around the deadly three land use regulation, building codes and health department rules and be able to prove that it's reproducible and economically sound, the investment money is there in spades. But the hard part is navigating that dance while remaining ethical and committed to ameliorating, you know, the meta crises that we're bringing ourselves into, you know, and not limited to climate, but that being the one that if we don't solve it, the others won't matter. So it's a, an interesting dance to figure out how do we build something that is plug compatible enough to tap into these trillion dollar investment pools and yet is really doing good with respect to saving the earth. Exactly. And 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 from the very beginning, Regen Villages has been and continues to be focused on sovereign wealth, pension fund, and green transition funds, funds that have, have been divesting from fossil fuels. Um, there's something like 22, 23 trillion US dollars that's parked offshore right now. That's money that would love to come and invest in the right things, but the moment it leaves offshore, it's going to get taxed to oblivion. So finding solutions to, to, to welcome those kinds of, of parked offshore money back into, into the currency, if you will, and the flow of getting these, these places built rapidly. But moreover, that there's an entire giant industry that's growing uh, on, on prefab construction. And that this, this industry, by its very nature, requires a pipeline of project locations to be able to continually run these earthen building material uh, construction facilities, these controlled environment, um, robotic-assisted kind of, of, of uh, construction places that are putting out wall units and modules for new kinds of homes, energy positive, passive house uh, especially. So again, that, that we can align the right places with those right industrial demand capacity flow and, and then as the triad, bring in you know, these, these giant institutional investors to, to underwrite the full developments from the very beginning, you know, whether it's 100 million, 150 million, whatever it is, dollars, euro, to build a four or 500 home community and, and create, you know, in the best kind of frame, as again, a, a kind of a copy-paste solution to building these neighborhoods as quickly as we possibly can. Because again, once we build them, they will yield over time benefit to the people who live there and to the surrounding communities and again to to those governments and to those other areas so we know that that there's so much money floating around we want to be the right place at the right time 
And that's where Region Village's framework has really been focusing on. Cool. I like that. That's the good part. Long as we don't get the other part wrong, I think that part is hugely important and really, really smart to be focusing on. Let's now, that's a good time to make a little transition down into some of the details. You mentioned prefab construction, and that's an area that people I know have looked into a fair amount. And it's funny, they keep coming back to saying, unfortunately, a lot of these fancy, you know, hempcrete or whatever end up being more expensive and not as good as just plain old frame construction. You know, you can get high R-value frame construction for $75 a square foot in this part of the country. To what degree have you guys researched whether these alternative building techniques actually do pay off? Well, I mean, look, the thing, really what it comes down to, it's like everything else. When you implement it at an industrialized scale, the costs come down. Right. So when you bring in hemp and hempcrete into a 3D extruder, 3D printer, okay, um, and you're printing out these social affordable homes, by one example, or you're creating, you know, these these prefab components in a warehouse environment, a controlled environment, that um, by doing enough of it and selling enough of it, it brings the costs down. It's like any other industry, right? So we know that right now it's still nascent and that there's pushback. And it's pushback because the the construction industry, which represents one of the biggest carbon footprints, by the way, uh, in the world, is resistant because they have a rinse and repeat attitude and mindset of, of pouring concrete and laying steel and doing what they think is, you know, it's easy for them. They don't have to invest any anything in, in some new way of, of constructing. Um, and in the same way of, of stick-built construction, that there's a lot of folks who believe that that's still the right way forward, but it's such a waste of, of time and energy now. So we believe wholeheartedly that it's really a matter of, of just time where the economics will be proven out on these earthen building materials inoculated into these prefab processes that will uh, be able to see these come down in cost dramatically. Yeah, I'll be following it, but I will say when I keep looking at it, it comes back to me, not stick built, that's clearly wrong, but basic frame construction prefab from a you know prefab factory, which is, of course, a very scalable industry. There's zillions of prefab builders all over the country, and you can get some pretty decent housing for remarkably little price with that very well-known construction technology. So I think you always have to compare these aspirational technologies with the actual competitors on the ground when one's making an actual decision about an actual community, because otherwise it won't be competitive in the marketplace. And as you say, if we're going to tap into that trillion-dollar investment pool, the resultant community has got to be cost-effective. Yeah, I mean, if you look at like the companies like Icon, for instance, and and uh, Bjark Ingels Group, big, you know, they have this partnership, and they've been looking and and they've already been doing prototyping, uh, building these three D printed homes uh, that are selling for less than five thousand, you know, fully finished, and that's a really exciting move towards social affordable access to a house and living in a house. Now, all we're saying is that instead of you know extruding traditional concrete through those systems to extrude, you know, hempcrete or bamboocrete, that there's ways of then putting a planet-friendly earthen building material, you know, into those places. So 
we know that it will happen. It's just a matter of being a little bit of a futurist that in the next, uh, you know, five to 10 years, that we'll see more and more of it. And then the prices will come down. That's our goal also is to support that. That sounds good. Let's go on to the next kind of piece of infrastructure you talked about, which is farming food. Something I, as a farmer, I know a little bit about. And I got to say, I was a little skeptical when I dug into your materials and you said that, you know, you could support 200 people from an acre or two. I go, what? Not in open air land-based agriculture, at least none I'm aware of. And in fact, I did a back of the envelope calculation and I discovered that if you want to produce 60 pounds of grass-fed beef, per year for a person, which is less than the average U.S. beef consumption, I believe, that alone requires one acre per person. So if you had 1,200 people living in your eco-village, you'd need 1,200 acres of land just to produce that amount of beef. So I suspect your land to food ratios may be off there, at least by my rough calculations. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about it because I think that's really important. You know, what we've done is we've looked at through effective research with Wageningen University in the Netherlands. And Wageningen is essentially hailed as the number one agricultural university in the world, maybe second to to UC Davis um, out here by us. But uh, there's a food basket that you can create um, in the context of permaculture and biodiversity where we uh, ran the calculations and we came to, the, to, this, to this number that we could derive probably 55 to 60% of the daily nutritional needs of a community of, of 200 homes. So, you know, roughly, you know, from Dutch perspective, about 600 people. And continuously between the soil-based farming and the also the vertical farming, the controlled greenhouse farming on that land, that roughly uh, the 60 acres, 65 acres or so, could feed, you know, the the twenty acres of density uh, quite effectively with that fifty-five to sixty percent of cultivars. Right? We're not talking about beef. We're not talking about pork. We're not talking about big slaughter of any kind. We're talking about you know high protein cultivation of plants, fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, aquaponic fish, shrimp, crawfish, uh, chicken, egg, light dairy. And then all of this can be modular in a very small footprint. And that, that intensive biodiverse farming actually uh, creates an overabundance of those 55 or 60% daily nutritional needs. And so you're absolutely right. We, we, you know, it's not from a developed economic context or a non-vegetarian context able to feed people uh, everything they need. So our goal really is to have uh, baked into Regen Villages an organic supermarket chain, you know, at the village square level, like a pop-up supermarket, which would be, you know, it would be either like in Europe, like a co-op or a Lidl, you know, something like that. They would provide the ingredients that we don't provide, you know, the beef and the pork and lamb and other kinds of things to those families. Other bulk ingredients that we're also not going to be growing, like large wheat crop or rice or things like this, um, but that they could absorb our artisanal ingredients, our surplus of those, and then then we have this, this lovely ecosystem and balance in terms of diet. So um, I'm not disputing your math when it comes to grass-fed beef or the typical consumption of 
of Western appetite for for big slaughter and beef, especially. But you also understand, I think, clearly how inefficient beef is in terms of uh, protein and nutrition, of how much land it requires of cultivation land for that creature and water, by the way, um, and methane, by the way, that though that the significant kind of beef farms, cattle farms, um, are producing. We're not against cows, by the way. I love cows. They're they're wonderful creatures. We just like to keep them alive, uh, sort of uh, from an Indian perspective, perhaps. But they that they are that they roam around the community and that they that their that their aeration and that their 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 waste is a is a benefit to to the cultivation. Um, also, from a biodynamic perspective, that um, the practices of using uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, their, their essence essentially in the irrigation of, of the, the crop, uh, seasons. So that's our perspective on, a, um, a diverse food basket that is abundant in protein, bioavailable nutrition. That's also biodiverse in a small footprint. Interesting. Uh, I think I'll have my producer reach out to you for the link so we can make sure we put it on the episode page so people can learn about what the Dutch have come up with. It's interesting. Yeah, our numbers are more like 150 people, 300 acres. But again, in the United States, at least, that works. We got plenty of land in the United States. We can easily afford two acres per person. In fact, the current industrial agricultural model requires a vastly larger amount than that. Because you're certainly right, you know, big slaughter and, you know, feedlots and grain-fed beef and all that stuff. It's an atrocity. But, you know, there's been a lot of innovation. One of our neighbors, Joel Salatin, probably the world's most famous farmer, has developed this amazing method where he co-raises grass-fed beef and pasture-raised chickens, where he moves the beef every two days, so it's a much more natural grazing. He then brings the eggmobile in with the chickens that break up the manure and eat the bugs that are growing in the manure, and so the manure doesn't smell, it re-fertilizes the soil appropriately, doesn't burn it, etc. And he has found a natural system of chicken, eggs, and beef that is great for the land. It actually builds soil and is sustainable over you know an infinite period of time. But it does require more land. It requires you know a higher ratio of land per person to support that kind of agriculture as you know part you know of the food shed for for the community. So I think there's a lot of ways to think about this, and I'd encourage people who are thinking about designing a community to educate themselves on various aspects of you know how the food system can be made clean, local, regenerative, and sustainable over the long haul, and carbon neutral, or better still, carbon positive. One of the amazing things about the Salatin method is it is clearly locking carbon in the soil. We're not quite sure how much yet, but it alone may be an important way of turning that dial on climate change. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say that that the University of Catalan in, in Barcelona had, had come up with a, a wonderful study uh, a few years back on what would it take to make a city block of about 20,000 people food secure? And that research was wonderful because it looked at sort of almost every square meter of possible open space, rooftop, atriums, balconies, tree-lined you know, streets and boulevards, wherever you possibly could grow something, you would grow it. And, and their research basically showed that they could feed, they could make that 
neighborhood of 20,000 people, a city block, um, food secure if everybody agreed to a vegetarian vegan diet. So um, I guess, again, it goes back to the, my point that where every possible area that you could make a neighborhood of 60 or 100 acres robust in its food production and, and whatever you know, those things can be, that you will get these wonderful overproducing kinds of, of areas. And, and so we do feel like that is, uh, again, germane to this idea of, of feeding Regen Village's communities in a resilient way uh, at their doorstep. Yeah, it's a great idea. It's just a matter of what kind of diet you want, how much land it takes to do it, and what percentage of your total diet you want to produce yourself versus, you know, buying from the chains. So that's, you know, an engineering problem, essentially, both uh, cultural and agricultural engineering problem, and has lots of different solutions with lots of different set points. I think you guys have an interesting perspective on this. Well, unfortunately, we're coming up to the end of our time here. We had to reschedule this, and we have about a half an hour less than we usually do, and I still have about two or three pages worth of questions, so maybe I'll get James back on later to go more deeply into this. But anyway, I'd like to thank you, James, for an extraordinarily interesting conversation about your project. And as always, we'll have all the links and information and organizations that we discussed, including his Regen Village company, on the episode page. So go to jimruttshow.com. So thanks, James. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Jim. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.